And from Michigan, my wife and I both grew up in Michigan, or Michigan grads, so that's why I was wearing my colors at the game uh, the other night. And uh, we've been involved now in church planting ministry since before he's an embryo, I mean, just, uh, just a long time uh, now. We were, um, I graduated from Gordon-Conwell Seminary, went to Virginia for about five or six years, and then uh, what came to Chicago. We've been involved in Chicago now for since then. Uh, in planting various kinds of, of churches and then started to wear the hat of Midwest Regional Coordinator and that's when I made some of my first connections out here years ago then for about 17 or 18 years was the church planting coordinator for the PCA so I was coordinating church planting for um, Canada and the United States and then over the last several years and just come back to just the Midwest uh, and what we call the Midwest Alliance so I'm serving as a resource for church planting uh, for all the churches and presbyteries of, uh, of the Midwest region for the PCA. So we've involved in church planting, uh, like I said, throughout that whole time, and really encouraged by what's going on here. Uh, maybe just some idea about uh, what our lives have been like. And, uh, a number of years ago, my daughter, uh, when she was um, in high school, we were driving near her home, and she pointed to a building, and she said, so, Dad, what is that building? I said, honey, what are you talking about? I said, that's a church. She said, oh, what do they use it for? And it just dawned on me that she'd been raised here in America. I'd never been in a church building. Uh, didn't, didn't even really know she went. All our lives are spent in gymnasiums and storefronts <laughs> and office foyers and things of that nature over the course of the years. And her response was, well, don't Christians just kind of gather wherever they can? I was like, well, yeah, but... Most of the time, they like to try to get their own place uh, kind of thing. And so we're still involved uh, all these years later in a facility that we rent. Um, we're still on setup and takedown crews and uh, that kind of thing. That's just the nature uh, of our lives. Now, over the years uh, involved in this ministry, there have been a couple of texts that have really impressed themselves on me and really have served as inspiration and guide for so much of what, what we do. Um, and there are two texts, actually, one in John, one in Matthew, that are held together by this common theme of the harvest. And those are the ones I wanted to share with you uh, briefly this morning. The first one in John 4, 31 through 35. This is coming at the end of Jesus' encounter with the woman uh, at the well. 
uh, here. Jesus has had this encounter with her. The, the disciples have been sent out. Uh, they've got takeout, whatever. They're coming back. And uh, now they, they have this encounter with Jesus. And picking up in verse 31, uh, he says this. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples, who were almost always slow in the uptake, so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And then in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, Jesus stops in the midst of a very busy life, incredibly busy ministry. Verse 35 through 38, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Before we look at this, uh, these texts, let's bow before God in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it is a joy to gather together this morning. I just already sense from this people a vibrancy and a joy that is really encouraging. And we pray, Father, for your presence among us, as we have already asked. It is our joy to gather, to unite our hearts and voices, to sing praise to your name. But Lord, it's also our earnest need and desire to hear you speak to us. And so, Lord, please open our hearts and minds to your word. Speak to us words of truth and life, of love, of righteousness and goodness. Father, because when you speak, things just happen. When you speak, worlds come into existence. When you speak, the dead are raised. And when you speak, souls are saved. Speak to us this morning, we pray, as we compose ourselves before you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are so much in these texts that I'd love to share with you. Matt says I've got like an hour and a half or so, so I'm going <laughs> to just have to kind of cut to the chase uh, with this whole thing. Um, and I think the first thing that Jesus really wants us to get a handle on, the, the, the main thing, the, really the one command that he's got in that text in, in John is he says, lift up your eyes and see that the fields around you are ripe for the harvest. I think one of the things he wants us as God's people, he certainly wanted his disciples, he wants us today, to see the world around us through his eyes. To see the world around us as he sees it. With all the needs, with all the opportunities that are there, it's something we need to very deliberately, very intentionally pursue. To lift up our eyes amidst all the the busyness, all the activity, all the stuff that we're doing, good things, of our lives and of our church and our ministry and all these things. Every now and then, I think he says, guys, just stop for a minute, will you? Just stop and look around you. And once again, be refreshed 
with a vision of the needs and opportunities that are all around you. Lift up your eyes. So many of us, I think, need, we need to do this because so many of us tend to think of North America as pretty much a churched place. Um, the United States is pretty much of a church country, the Midwest after all, heartland of America this sort of thing where we've continued to hold on to our values longer than everybody else but I just don't know that that's the case I, I, I certainly don't think that that's the case these days and we can see that from just some very sobering eye-opening statistics, some of which I shared with the group we met with uh, last night. But for example, I think it helps us, just looking at some of the numbers, we live in a nation now, the United States, with some 320 or whatever million people. And even the most generous of statistics will say that over 250 million of these people aren't going to church anywhere at any time. They might identify themselves as, well, I'm Catholic or Lutheran or Baptist, whatever, but they're not going to church anywhere at any time. They're just fully secularized, de-churched people, which means now that almost all mission agencies and denominations uh, have listed the United States as the third largest mission field in the entire world, right. starting with China, India, then you walk, walk it down, and it's the United States uh, here. Or you can just look at the Midwest region alone. We've got 71 million people and what is demographically defined as the, as the Midwest region. And in that region, over 50 million of these people aren't going to church anywhere at any time, which means if you pull the Midwest region out of the, the general statistics of the U.S., we are now listed as the 10th largest mission field in the entire world in terms of unchurched people uh, that there's going on. These are some things we have to just kind of take in and think about. One other way to look at it is way back in 1900, uh, there were 27 churches in America for every 10,000 people. Uh, you fast forward to that uh, a little bit into 1950, and there were 17 churches for every 10,000 people in America. You go to the year 2000, we were down to 11 churches for every 10,000 people. Today, we're at eight churches for every 10,000 people uh, in America. These are just simply the realities in which we live. And compare this to literally every other continent and every other place in the, in the world where the church seems to be growing, if not even exploding. I mean, you look at places like China, uh, for, for example, where the church now, uh, the lowest estimates are that the church is around 100 million people and growing rapidly. Some say the number is closer to 200 million, which is dwarfing the church uh, in America. Uh, you look at a place like Indonesia, the largest Muslim population uh, in the world, and yet the church there is 40 million strong and growing uh, in Indonesia. Um, years ago, uh, they were looking at the continent of Africa and calling it the African Pentecost because 16,000 Africans a day were becoming believers. But that's been dwarfed in recent years by what's going on in India where 35,000 people are becoming believers every single day. Uh, in, in India. It's just a, the powerful moving of the Spirit. We talk about Brazil. My brother, the church is growing there. It's just exploding. Church planting is going on like crazy uh, in Brazil. You can look all over, Latin America, Asia, wherever, and you see that have, even Europe, where the church seems to have bottomed out and stabilized, there's only one place in the world where the church is continuing to shrink against its population, the United States. It is the only place in the world where the church is shrinking against its population. 
Now add to all of this, I think very positively, add to this picture all the many diverse people groups in our cities, towns, and villages where God has literally been bringing the world to our front door, to our workplaces, our schools, our neighborhoods, and everything. It's just been a remarkable thing. We are now the most diverse people on the face of the earth. You've got certain places in Paris and London, whatever, who have large Muslim populations, but you don't have the incredible diversity that you have in the United States, where since 2004, every single people group on the planet that has a registered demographic presence with the United Nations, has a registered demographic presence within the bounds of one country, and that's the United States. It's just the, the needs and the opportunities. Jesus says, stop, folks, for a minute. Then take note of this mission field that is all around you, and that we need to think in these terms. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, there are more missionaries now being sent to the United States than we send to the rest of the world. We tend to think of ourselves as like this mission-sending uh, church to the rest of the world. But the rest of the world is sending missionaries to us far more than we are sending them to the rest of the world. This really came home to me not too long ago. We were uh, planting some churches in D.C., just a couple of them near Capitol Hill, as a matter of fact. And I flew in got into a, a cab and was driving there. And it seems like wherever I go with an Uber driver or a cab driver, they're from another country. And I like to get to, to figure out who they are and where they're from. So uh, started to talk to our cab driver. said, so where are you from? He said, I'm from Ghana. I said, oh, that's, that's great. What brings you to the States? He said, I'm a church planter. He said, oh, wow, really? Okay, well, we like to send missionaries to places like Ghana all the time. Uh, so why are you here? Well, it was like he had a prescribed script that he gave me uh, or whatever. So for the next 20 minutes, he went on to say, I'm here for basically two reasons and many others like me. He said, the first reason is because we're here for what, what you Americans just don't seem to get. And that is that the church in your country is going downhill really fast. And if you go, you're taking all the rest of us with you because you're still the most influential people on the face of the earth. So I have been sent here to plant churches to reach America. He said, I've also been sent here to reach people you apparently don't care anything about. And I kind of thought I knew what he meant by that, but I had to ask him, what do you mean by that? Uh, kind of thing. And so he told me, he said, well, just look, we're, we're driving. Look at all these people. And look, at, just think about all the different places they're coming from and all that, how they look and, and this sort of thing. He said, are they in your churches? He said, for the most part, they're not. And so apparently you don't care. So I've been sent here to reach people that you don't apparently care anything about. And I've had similar conversations with others. We had a guy come through our assessment center uh, is how we vet potential church planters, Shibu Uman, and he was like, he had the same spiel practically uh, to give me when I said, why are you here planting churches? Why aren't you in India where there's like billions of people uh, kind of thing? And this is pretty much uh, the same thing uh, that he told me. This also came to mind because so many of these people are from countries where it's almost impossible to engage them with the gospel. Uh, it's illegal. Uh, it can cost you your life in some cases to engage with the gospel. So we had started a number of years ago in Chicago. I built a relationship uh, with the leadership at the largest mosque in the Chicago area, which wasn't far from our home. At the time, it was the third largest mosque in the United States. So I got to know the imam and the director of the institute and some of the other leadership there. We just began to interact a whole lot. And we set up these things we'd call, which others I've heard have done too, uh, called Meetings for Better Understanding. 
And so once a month on a Friday night, we'd have this gathering on a degree, where we talk on an agreed upon topic. Normally it was at the mosque, and uh, they would have somebody speak on it from an Islamic point of view, and I would speak on it from a Christian point of view. Um, and basically what that meant is for, for six years, uh, once a month, I got to preach the gospel in a mosque. Uh, and then to have all these other conversations with people afterwards. It was stimulating and very educational. Uh, and we actually saw a bit of fruit uh, from all that, which is why it ended at the end of six years. But the fact of the matter is, one night, uh, where a lot of these meetings would end up with people standing on top of their chairs and yelling, you know, Allah Akbar, and this sort of thing, because we'd obviously have done something offensive. This Pakistani guy comes to me at, uh, after the meeting is done and says, you know, I'm new here. This is very interesting to me. I've not heard these sort of things before. But I need to tell you that if we're back in my home country, I'd have to slit your throat. Okay. Um, I mean, what do you say uh, in a moment like that? You know, like, go, go in peace, you know, something I don't know. But the, the thing is, he's just, uh, I, I'm thinking, you but you can't. Not here. You can't. And it just hit me again, the unprecedented opportunities, if not responsibilities, that we have as God's people to stop and look and see the world around us. Uh, you look at the, listen to the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. Well, never has the going of the Great Commission been easier, cheaper, or more compelling than it is now. Because God has said, okay, okay well, I'll just bring the mission field to you. You know, the whole world. Uh, and very often when you reach people here in the States, guess who you get to, get to reach? Back home. It, it inevitably starts to happen. And so I believe that here in the Midwest region, in the United States as a whole, we as God's people have just got to lift up our eyes. We've got to pray that God will take the scales away or something and let us see the mission field that exists in Lincoln, Nebraska, in the state of Nebraska, in the Midwest region, and in our country as a whole. This is the reality in which we are living. And the point is, though, as we live in this region, as we live in this nation, or in this community uh, here, we're, we're talking about more than just statistics. There are gospel issues here. There are personal, moral, and spiritual implications to those statistics because they represent real people. And when we see all this, we begin to realize that it's not surprising that with the increasing secularism that we see in our nation and a country that's losing whatever moral roots and uh, spiritual compass it used to have. Uh, it's not incidental that we see a land riddled with increasing immorality and injustice, broken homes and marriages, violence, abuse, bigotry, racism. You go on and on. And it's not surprising that we see this when we just start looking at some of these basic numbers, let alone people who are going around that don't have a relationship with God and are lost and going to hell apart from him. These are the realities of the mission field around us that Jesus wanted his disciples then. I believe he wants his disciples now to be very thoughtful, prayerful, and intentional about noticing. And so one of the things we do need to hear as God's people, lift up your eyes. See that the fields around you are white for the harvest. Have my vision for the harvest. Look at the world, look at your neighborhood, look at your community, look at the people you go to school with, that you work with, that you walk by on the street, look at them through the eyes of Jesus. Put on those glasses and see them through his eyes.
but there's more than having a vision for the harvest. I believe he also, as God's people, wants us to have a heart for the harvest. Once again, we're told in Matthew 9, Jesus is looking at the crowd. He stops and he looks. And again, he's not just seeing statistics. He's seeing real people. He stops and looks. Now, one of the things that is true about our, where we live in the Chicago area, I know it's true here too, is that over the years there have been a lot of shopping malls. And I know that shopping malls are kind of going out right now, especially COVID and this sort of thing. But for years, the five or six malls within 15 minutes of our home delighted my wife Anne and my daughter Elizabeth to no end. Uh, and so we'd frequently go. And the fact of the matter is, I hate malls. <laughs> and when I go to a mall, I am instantly tired and bored. <laughs> and my feet hurt, and my legs hurt, and I, I, I just want to go home. Uh, so whatever, I end up sitting somewhere where husbands can be easily retrieved. <laughs> and I get to do what I really do like to do in a mall or a city street or an airport or whatever it might be, and that's look at people. And I'm in this mall, and I'm looking at all these people going by. And there just amazes me, all the shapes and sizes and uh, heights and the colors and styles of hair and clothing. I think, how many ways can you do a human being uh, that are so basically alike, really, uh, kind of thing? But I see all this kind of thing. And I said, as one has been involved in this pastoral ministry and lived life now for a long time, uh, I just start thinking, I wonder what life is like for these folks as I see them go by. You know, I, I see all these older folks going by. It's cold and snowy and icy outside, so they've come to the mall to get, just get a walk and get exercise. I see these young moms uh, with strollers and kids in tow. They've got to get out of the house, go somewhere, and so they go to the mall uh, to, to walk around. I see groups of teenagers, you know, what we call mall rats, uh, just kind of going around. Uh, you know, the girls in front giggling, the boys are behind, whatever, and they just walk around. And I keep seeing these people from different places, and I see this couple go by, and I think, gosh, Whatever she ever see in him, you know, kind of thing, or just any number of different thoughts that I might have about these people that are they're going along. And again, I start asking, but what is life like for them? Has life turned out the way they had hoped? What are some issues and needs that they're dealing with back home, behind the four walls, or whatever? What's going on in their lives? And after all these years in life and pastoral ministry, my conclusions would just agree with Jesus here. We're a mess. Bottom line, it's a theological statement. We're a mess, okay? From top to bottom, every single one of us. Jesus looks at people. He looks into our shopping malls. He looks into our offices. He looks into our schools and neighborhoods. He looks into our churches, and he sees that people are a mess. They're distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. That's what he sees. He sees that some of us are harried and stressed. Some of us are tired and troubled. Some are discouraged even to the point of despair. Some are dealing with debilitating depression. He sees others are afraid and anxious. They're, they're lonely. They're angry. They're, they're bitter. Uh, he sees people who are addicted to any number of different things. He sees that some people have financial, some have uh, physical, uh, some have relational problems. He sees people going around with broken dreams. He sees people going around with broken hearts. He sees people going around with broken relationships and broken bodies. That's what he sees when he looks around. 
And he sees mostly people lost in need of salvation, in need of a relationship with God, whether they will admit it or not. And when Jesus looks at this and he sees these people and he comes to this assessment of who we are and the mess that we're in, what's his response? It's so easy to read right past this, this simple basic statement. When Jesus looks at messed up people, what is his response? It is compassion. He felt compassion for them. Not condemnation, not moral indignation, not denunciation. I mean, he doesn't look at us or whatever and say, hey, you made your own bed, you sleep in it. You made a bunch of bad decisions, you just live with them. You've only got yourself to blame. You're the cause of all your own troubles. That's what, do you ever hear him say anything like that? He gets pretty upset with the religious elite who think they're all something, but not with messed up, hurting, broken people. Instead, he says things like we just sang in some of our songs up here this morning. Come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. That's the posture he takes. That's who Jesus is. That's why he came. That's why the cross. Because Jesus came, he walked in our shoes, and then he suffered your death. He walked in your shoes, and then he took the bullet that was intended for you. He took the judgment that we deserve because of all of our mess, because of all of our sin. Jesus stepped in and he took that for us. All the condemnation and wrath of God was poured out on him. So it did not have to be poured on you. Jesus suffered all of that for us because he loved you so much. He saw you of such value to him. He loved you so greatly. He was willing to go to the ultimate extreme to redeem you for himself. And that's unreal. That is just unbelievable reality. That's why Jesus came. You are why he came. And do you see that this is what Jesus wants to do in your life? Do you see how it is that he feels towards you? He knows you're a mess. He knows the skeletons that are in your closet. He knows the sin and the unbelief that clings to your soul and all the other junk that you don't want anybody else to see or know about. He knows all of that and says, yeah, I, but that's why I came and that's why I did what I did. So come to me and get cleansing, get forgiveness, and you get to become now a child of God. You get to have eternal life. You get to know that you're not going to hell, you're going to heaven for all eternity, and that spurs on our worship. It treat, causes us to treat one another with love and grace, and it spurs us on to mission. Because once we have experienced this grace ourselves, once you are a Christian and know this grace, then you have to take the same gracious response to everybody else. You just cannot be callous or jaded or cynical or self-righteous or judgmental or lazy or self-absorbed for anything but a caring, compassionate person compelled to action by the power of the gospel. That's what it all comes down to, what some theologians call the catalyst of the cross. 
And so my second prayer for you all, and this, this outline is really how I pray for the churches and presbyteries and leaders of, the, of, of our region, is that God will not only give you a vision for the harvest, but he would cultivate in you a heart for the harvest. And a heart for the harvest, caring about hurting, lost, broken people, comes as the gospel itself sinks down deeper and deeper into your soul. And you understand the wonders of his grace. You can sing amazing grace, but you can barely get through it because it means so much. It's described your life. That, when the gospel means that much to you, then you begin to have a heart for hurting, lost, broken people. But we have to go one step further. Not only a vision for the harvest, not only a heart for the harvest, but I believe that he wants us to have a passion for the harvest. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. I have food to eat that you know not of. Now, when people start talking about food, they get my attention. Okay. I mean, we all eat. You know, I love to eat. You can see that, you know, right here. We all got our favorite foods, this sort of thing. Eating is not only just important to life. I mean, it sustains life. You can't live without eating. But it's way more than that for all of us. I mean, you, we're going to have pizza later, okay? Great. How much better does that get? You know, barbecue, chocolate, whatever. I don't know what your favorite food might be, but for us, it is so much a source of enjoyment, let alone basic sustenance. So Jesus starts talking about food, he gets my attention. And I find that his words here are so impressive because he takes this terminology, this imagery of God's food, God's will, and translates it in terms of doing the will of God doing the work of God. He turns it in terms of the harvest. This is his passion. This is his food, so to speak. You might say it's what satisfies and fulfills him. It's what meets his most basic need in life. It's, it's why he gets up in the morning and, and does what he does and faces all that he faces, uh, this kind of thing. It's what drives him and fulfills him, the passion that lives and burns in his soul and must be satisfied like a hunger. It's like he tells his disciples, guys, I know you brought whatever you brought here, but I would rather skip dinner than to miss the time I just had with the Samaritan woman because that's what I came for. That's what it's all about. That's what fills me, sustains me, and compels me forward to deal with everything I deal with in this life and drives me to the cross itself. That is the passion of the Christ. And this is the same passion that I believe needs to burn in the soul of every disciple. But note that what we're talking about here is different than a heart from the harvest. A heart for the harvest is caring about lost, hurting, broken people. A passion for the harvest is having a zeal for the glory of God. It's having a zeal for the work of God. That because this is important to him, it's important to us. Because it's on his agenda, it gets on our agenda. Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Because that's what I do. That's where I'm going. If you follow me, that's where you're going to end up. Uh, at the same token, if you're not following me, you won't end up there. And if you don't end up there, you might not be following me. Because that's where I go. That's what I do. And so when we sing some of the songs we sing and pray the prayers we pray, uh, when we say in effect to God in many different ways, Lord, I want to do your will in my life. I think when he hears those words from us, he is deeply pleased. I think that just moves his spirit uh, when he hears us say that, because I think he knows we mean that. But I also think he'd follow up with that and say, well, if you really do mean that, then get involved with the harvest. 
because that's where I am. That's what I'm doing. So I love it, but that's, what, that's where this needs to lead you. This is the passion I believe we need to seek for and pray for because it doesn't come naturally and it can't be self-generated. I mean, this, you could be sitting here saying, okay, I agree with all this. This is what the Bible teaches. Vision, you know, heart, passion. Okay, I got it. I got it. But it's, it has a hard time getting into here. And so we might say, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not leaving today until I have a real uh, heart passion for the harvest. Just, I'm just not going to leave here today without it. So here you go. Let's concentrate. Let's really think and let's, let's, let's inspire ourselves. Let's move ourselves. You can feel it. It's a little tingle. That's how you'll sense it first. I mean, obviously, it's so stupid, right? Because you can't just simply self-generate this thing. The only way it happens is when we begin to go to God and say, Lord, I repent. And I ask you to change me. I want you to drive the gospel deep into my soul. I want you to produce in me your eyes to see the world the way you see it. I want you to produce in me the heart that really cares. I want you to have uh, produce in me a passion that is a zeal for your glory. Because frankly, I don't care that much. Not really. Certainly not like you. And if I want to be like Jesus, then this is going to be a part of what I pursue. I think there are a lot of Christians frankly, who are going around malnourished, if we're talking about the food analogy uh, here. They're, we're going around starving. We're going around malnourished. I talk to Christians all the time who are actually bored with their faith, wondering, is this all there is? And I think one of the reasons they're bored and malnourished is because they're not engaged in the harvest. And they're not seeing God working in them and through them in powerful ways and, and answering prayer and doing things that they can't attribute to anything else, but God working in them and through them as he overcomes their fears and reticence. So my prayer for you all is that God will give you these things. Vision, that he will give you a heart, that he will give you a passion for the harvest. And then, when these things characterize God's people, to the degree that they characterize God's people, then we will begin to get involved in the harvest itself. Then we will begin to pray. That's what Paul says to do here, or Jesus says to do here, and that Paul emphasizes so often throughout all of his epistles. We pray for the harvest. We become a house of prayer uh, for the nations. And his prayer, what is it? Guys, there's a huge need out there. I want you to pray for God to send laborers for the harvest. We need more. He doesn't say to his disciples, well, there they are, guys. Look at them. There's just millions of them. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. Just go get them. He doesn't say that. He says, guys, we need more. We need more people for the harvest. It's interesting to me that the word when he says in Matthew 9, 38, when he says that God will send out laborers for the harvest, the word send out there is the same word he used for expelling demons. In other words, pray that the Lord will expel laborers for the harvest. Pray that he will cast out laborers for the harvest. The sense seems to be, guys, I'm not looking for laborers out there. I'm looking for laborers in here. I'm looking for God to send out from our midst the people he wants for the harvest. The laborers are already here. I want you to pray that he sends them out to do this. We need more people, is what he's saying. And this kind of thing reminded me, really, of this movie I watched a long time ago. I'm sure you all have watched it um, yourselves. Um, you guys remember the movie Jaws? A great movie. I mean, it's really wild. And there's this one scene uh, in the movie Jaws where, you know, Sheriff, I think it's Brody or Cody or whatever, he's on the back of the boat and he's throwing all this chum off the boat. He's looking for Mr. Jaws to come to the surface uh, here. And the other two guys are in the cabin. They're just drinking. 
um, a little bit. And so he's out there, bored to tears, and all of a sudden, this huge Jaws comes up out of the water, kind of thing. And everybody in the theater just screams, and the popcorn is flying, uh, this kind of thing. And everybody jumps back, and Sheriff Brody stands up, and he backs up into the cabin of the boat, looking out in horror what he's just seen. And he utters those great famous words, which are? <laughs> yeah, we need a bigger boat. Yeah, and you're sitting there in the theater like, man, yeah, you need a... He's going to eat that boat. Yeah. <laughs> Which, of course, he, um, spoiler alert, I'm not going to get into all of that kind of thing. But the point is, we need more. Labor's, we need a bigger boat. We need more people from our midst that understand these things, to have his vision, to have his heart, to have his passion, and at the start, to pray. That's, that's the first thing that you notice about people who care about the things that Jesus cares about. They mobilize to pray uh, in their small groups, in prayer clusters, in your personal life. You're praying for your neighbors. You're praying for your schoolmates. You're praying for those you work with. You're praying for your family, that sort of thing. Those who don't know Jesus, you pray. That's who you are because you know there's nothing that you can do in and of yourself. And then you seek to build relationships and you partner and we plant churches, which is why we're seeking to do what we're seeking to do in a place like Lincoln. It still has well over 200,000 people who don't go to church anywhere at any time. And if you were to plant a half a dozen churches that were averaging 500 apiece, it would reach such a small percentage of those folks, you wouldn't even know what to do with them all. But it would be part of why we're here, what it is we're seeking to do. So my prayer for all of you, as you think about your future, where you're going, and how, how these three churches, how Zion and Grace and Redeemer are going to cooperate together for the sake of the kingdom here, maybe even with some other churches uh, here in the, in the Lincoln area, I'm praying that what's going to characterize this and drive it, the only way it'll be more than just a temporary fad, the only thing where it becomes a real movement of these churches just to the degree that you all as God's people have Jesus's vision for the harvest, that you have Jesus's heart for the harvest, that you have Jesus's passion for the harvest, that you are a people who are mobilized to pray for the harvest, and then you begin to give and work towards this harvest. May God continue to be at work in your midst and producing these things in even greater and greater measure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we prayed at the beginning, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. The Lord, that you would speak to us as your people. We pray that Lord, you would hear. And the Lord, we would think that you would have It is worn and withered. No.